in the house of the Lord. All right, we're going to have some fun this morning. Um, we have been talking about Jesus as King. So take your Bibles, turn to two different, two different passages. Turn to two different passages. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 and following, and Matthew 24. Over the past month, we've looked at, um, at Jesus again. We've looked at him being a servant king of how the cross serves as an example for humility, service, and dependence upon him. We've looked at uh, Jesus, the risen king, the resurrection as the preeminent display of the power of God that assures us of life. Life, hope, love, and forgiveness. And then a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Jesus, the ascended king. The ascension of Jesus guarantees that we receive the Holy Spirit, that there is one like us in heaven now interceding on our behalf. And as a result, we have hope and power and the love and promise of Christ. I mean, Christ is enough for me. Amen? The servant king, the risen king, the ascended king. In 1981, I went to be the Minister of Music and Youth, uh, which was a popular combination back in the early 80s of staff positions for part-time slave labor at Baptist churches across Texas. So in 1981, I went to be the Minister of Music and Youth at First Baptist Church of Hubbard, Texas. Hubbard um, is a small town just northeast of Waco, Texas, uh, Hubbard, uh, their mascot is is the Jaguar, but they didn't call it the Jaguars. They called it the Jaggers. So they were the Hubbard Jaggers, and um, that's just Texas. We can say whatever we want in Texas because we're our own country. So the Hubbard Jaggers. Well, I'd been there for a couple of weeks when on Sunday night, do you remember back when we used to actually do Sunday night church every Sunday night? Uh, no, none of us ever saw the wonderful world of Disney because we were always at church on Sunday night. Anyway, we were at church on Sunday night, and the pastor started doing a series on the return of Christ. And he rolled out a scroll uh, that took off the entire stage of the church, of the end times from everything that was going to take place about the end of time. Now, Uh, Really, most of my life had been spent under my dad's leadership as a pastor. I had gone to different churches throughout college, but really most of my time had been spent with my dad. And though my dad preached about eschatology, he did not preach about, by the the way, eschatology means the study of end times, for those of you who aren't aware. Um, And so the study of the end of time, and my dad had preached on it, but he wasn't like as certain as this guy was. I mean, this guy was absolutely in the know about how everything was going to take place at the end of time. And I heard words that I had uh, really heard, read about and heard, but really wasn't totally aware. And there, there are good theological words that we should be understanding about, things like the millennium. But then we started talking about, is it premillennium, postmillennium, or amillennium? 
Then we started talking about the rapture and when the rapture is going to occur and then are we going to be raptured before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or after the tribulation. Then we started talking about revelation, about the seven seals, the seven um, trumpets, the seven bulls, the, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the two witnesses, the beast, the antichrist, and a partridge in a pear tree. And so we talked about the entire, the entire thing. And again, he was so absolutely certain of the order of things. Now, if you want to know his view on the order of things, just go read the whole Left Behind series. That would be his view of exactly what's going to take place uh, at the end of time. By the way, he would be, um, he would, just to be labeled, he'd be a dispensational premillennialist um, who believed strongly in the rapture, pre-tribulation rapture, um, all of those things. That's what, by the way, the Left Behind series is all about. And if I just started speaking in tongues and you didn't know, don't worry about it. You're, you're not any worse off than you were when we started. I think the thing that interested me at the time and also made me question was his absolute certainty. I questioned then, and I question now, how much we absolutely really know about the return of Christ. I'm not going to go into detail about all of those things. Maybe sometime we'll do a class about all those different views and um, why nobody really knows, though many people claim to know, uh, because the Bible really talks about all of them. And there's some reasons for that, I believe, and I, I want to talk a little bit about the big picture. Rather than talking with certainty about the things we really don't know, let's talk about the things we really do know about the return of Christ. So first, let me read these two passages. First, beginning in Revelation chapter 9, verses 11 through 16. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus returns to a world ruined by man and Satan, in order to reclaim it for God. His second coming is, is likened to an event uh, of lightning. It's witnessed by, by the way, both believers and unbelievers. The Bible, in its totality, trying to look at various verses, there are over 1,800 references to the return of Jesus Christ including 318 in the New Testament. No less than 17 Old Testament books emphasize his return or speak of it, while seven out of every ten chapters 
in the New Testament in some way refer to this event. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus, speaking of his return, says this, For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, where there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sun of the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. What do we know about the return of Christ? What can we say with certainty? What should our response be? Let's look at some points about this this morning. The first point is this. The return is promised. The return of Christ is a promise. On the day of the ascension, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember that all his followers are gathered out there. Jesus lifts up his hands. He blesses his followers. And then he ascends into heaven on a cloud. Now, for us, the the pictures of this, uh, every picture I've ever seen of the ascension of Christ looks a little squirrely to me. I mean, he's he's in the robe and everything, and he's got his hands lifted, and there's a cloud surrounding him, and and he's going up to heaven. I don't know what it looked like. I I don't know if it's just beyond description to see the ascension of Christ, but it was a physical ascension. Remember, this is really important. We talked about this at the ascension of Christ a couple of weeks ago. Christ is in heaven in bodily form. Now, this is really important for our theology to understand that Christ is in heaven in bodily form. He ascended in bodily form. And as everybody's standing there, kind of wondering what to do next, I'm sure, like, well, there he goes, kind of thing. Suddenly, uh, in Acts 1.11, it says that some men appeared. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? I would say, well, because he just went. He... <laughs> this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. What is the promise? Same way he went, he's coming back. How's he coming back? Physically, in bodily formed, Christ will return. In every age since that point, the second coming of Jesus Christ has captured the attention of the church. Why is that? Well, I believe it's because it is the one real mystery of the gospel that has yet to be unveiled. I mean, really, if you think about it, everything else has been given to us. All the other mysteries of Christianity are rooted in events that took place in the past and are being revealed to generation after generation after generation of mankind. Paul talks about the mystery of the gospel that was revealed. But this mystery, the mystery of the return of Christ, this great event that culminates the end of time in the new heaven and the new earth has yet to take place. At the beginning of World War II, the Philippines were about to fall to the 
Japanese, and you remember that General Douglas MacArthur was on the Philippines, and he had to evacuate with all the troops because the Japanese were about to overrun the Philippines. And his famous saying uh, as he's leaving uh, the Philippines was, you remember? I shall return. I shall return. Well, it took three, almost four years before he came back. But on a regular basis, MacArthur would do a broadcast to the Philippines where he kept telling them, I shall return. I shall return. Hang on, I shall return. And on October 22nd, 1944, there's this famous picture where MacArthur didn't even wait for the boat to come up on shore. He, he gets out of the boat and wades up onto to the shore and is three words, I have returned. I shall return, I have returned. To him, it was a promise that was to be fulfilled. Jesus made a similar promise 2,000 years ago when he said, I'm coming soon. And it's a promise that's been repeated over and over again in the church throughout every generation since then. But it's a promise that will be fulfilled because all of God's promises are yes and amen. One of the truths of life is that you may make a promise, but you may not actually have the power to fulfill that promise. You may intend with everything in you to see that promise fulfilled, but there are things out of your control that may not allow the promise to be fulfilled because you don't control the weather. You don't control the future. You don't control what takes place at every moment of every day. So those of you who have control issues, you might as well just let them go because you're just kind of killing yourself. God, on the other hand, is in total control. When he makes a promise, he has the absolute and complete power to see it fulfilled. All his promises are yes and amen. So the return is promised. We're guaranteed that's going to happen. The return is imminent, we know it will take place, and yet unknown. 2 Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. The day of the Lord is a term, a euphemistic term, for the return of, the, uh, return of Jesus. How is it going to come? How is that day going to come according to Peter? You can read it to me if you want. I'm just trying to make sure you're awake. How is it going to come? How many thieves do you know announce, okay, I'm going to be there on October 2nd? I mean, really, the idea is you're not going to know. That's the whole element. There's the element of surprise. It's unknown. Jesus says this, and this, I think, is incredibly important for us. No one knows. Who, who knows? No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Jesus is saying, I don't even know when I'm coming back. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that day will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house, puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one on the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, 
whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or dawn, you don't even know what time he's coming, morning, noon, or night. You don't know what time of day, more le- even the day. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Sometime in 2007, 2008, I can't remember the exact year, we took a mission trip to Ghana. Uh, as we were doing back then on a yearly basis. And out near the airport was a billboard that said this. Now, this is like 2007, 2008. We're driving back around the airport, and I was just fascinated that they were telling me the day of the rapture. I don't know if you can see it, but it says the rapture, May 21st, 2011. So we're like three years out, and I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I I know now uh, when it's going to take And then it says, the end of the world, October 21st, 2011. We took a picture of it. I came back. I investigated a little bit. Who would would put a picture, a big billboard? Because you can see the guy with the bike kind of in the lower right-hand corner, so it's probably bigger than you, you might think this billboard is announcing both the rapture and the end of the world. Well, this billboard was actually put out by a guy by the name of Harold Camping, who operated a ministry called Family Radio. Harold Camping is notable for issuing multiple failed predictions of dates about the end times. Camping predicted that Jesus would return to earth on May 21st, 2011, and that the saved would be taken up to heaven in the rapture. That means all the believers go and all the unbelievers are left behind. Uh, hence the term left behind. You remember the, the books that are total fiction Um, and that the saved world would be then taken up to heaven in the rapture, and then there would follow five months of plagues in which millions would die before the end of the world, which would occur on October 21st, 2011. Uh, As you can guess, camping was wrong, dead wrong. He's no longer alive, so now he's, anyway. uh, (laughs) He's wrong, but he followed, he raised a lot of money for this advertisement campaign for a number of years. And I know I'm being sarcastic and humorous, but camping follows in a long, long line of Christians since Christ first came through now who have predicted when Christ was going to return. William Miller, who established both the Jehovah's Witness and the Seventh-day Adventist. Both of them come from uh, William Miller, predicted that the end of the world would be March 21st, 1842. Herbert W. Armstrong, Jim Jones, David Koresh, Heaven's Gate, all predicted the return of Christ, some with catastrophic consequences. Even prominent, I, and I could go way back to the early... Um, probably from about the 200s on, we have people who have predicted dates of the return of the coming of Christ. Even very prominent mainline theologians have at times given dates when they thought Jesus Christ would return. Martin Luther predicted that Christ would return by 1600. Cotton Mather predicted Christ would return by 1697. Pat Robertson said 1982. Even Isaac Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, and Jonathan Edwards, one of the leading theologians in American history, both of them predicted that the millennial reign of Christ would begin in 2000. So far, everyone's been wrong. 
With the reestablishment of Israel in 1948, it reached a fever pitch about the return of Christ. In 1970, Hal Lindsey wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth that used the reestablishment of the, the nation of Israel along with a lot of passages from Revelation to talk about the end times and predict dates for the coming. The Late Great Planet Earth was, by the way, the best-selling book of the night. 19- the best-selling nonfiction book of the 70s. We are enamored with the return of Christ. As a matter of fact, if you want to raise funds for a church or a ministry, preach about the nation of Israel and harp on the second coming. That's a cynical view of the church, but it is the truth. Very little motivates people like those two themes. Here's what we do know. We don't know when Christ is going to return. And I would say to you, if you sit under someone, if ever I start saying Christ is going to return on, just go. Because I've lost it by then. (laughs) Say, oh, it's time for Pastor Bart to go to the home. (laughs) Just put him on his side. Because no one knows. We know it's imminent. We know it's coming. We are. This is the one thing I know. I'm closer today to the return of Christ than I was yesterday. I know it's coming. I just don't know when. So how do I live my life knowing it's coming but not? I mean, really, one of the things of the 70s that I saw prominent within the church was almost this mentality that Christ's return is so, and some of you already know what I'm going to say, Christ's return is so imminent, don't even prepare to live for the future. Just live for right now, because it's going to happen tomorrow. You don't need to get married, you don't need to really work on things, don't invest your money, don't worry about the future, live only in the moment, because Christ is going to return every day. Listen, the truth is, we do live like Christ is going to return any day. But at the same time, we've got to work generationally. We've got to look toward, the, look toward the days ahead. John Wesley was one day out working in his garden, and one of his neighbors came by and said, John, if you knew what, that Christ was going to return today, what would you do? And he'd say, I would be doing just what I'm doing right now. You're to live every moment as if Christ could return at that moment, but be found in him faithful. Keep a watch. Keep looking. Don't quit doing. The return is imminent and yet unknown. Here's here's what I would consider the bad news of the return of Christ. The return of Christ will bring judgment. You know, from now Until someone dies or until Christ returns, the door is wide open to receive the gospel. But the moment Christ returns, that door is shut eternally. The the return of Christ brings judgment. When, When MacArthur returned to the Philippines, not everybody was happy to see him come back. The Japanese were not thrilled about MacArthur's return. It is estimated that it cost 100,000 lives to retake the Philippines. It was a day of judgment. So much more will be the return of Christ. I don't know if you noticed in the passages I read to you right at the beginning of the service about the return of Christ, the passage from Matthew, 
When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. That is awesome. Well, then what will happen? All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Then what does he do? Welcome. See ya. I mean, it's a time of judgment where he's separating those who are his followers versus those who are not. And at that moment, it's too late to change sides. For 2,000 years, the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone forth. The good news of Jesus Christ, which is this. Christ came to die for our sins. He came to restore us to God. He came to to die on that cross so that our sins could be forgiven. He did in grace what none of us could do. We can't work our way back into right relationship with God. Christ did it all for us. We have the choice to receive that or not. If we choose to reject it, then there's going to come a judgment, a day of wrath. We're either called to the banquet feast of Christ or we're called to a banquet and forgive the graphic nature of this but it's what the book of Revelation and both the book of Daniel say those who reject Christ their flesh will be picked from their bones it's a graphic picture of judgment Revelation 19:11. I read the whole passage to you first but it, it says I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. What does he do? With justice, he judges and makes war. He judges and makes war. His, his, his robe is dripped in blood. His name is the word of God. There's a sword coming out of his mouth. All of the pictures here in Revelation speak of the coming of Christ in a form where he's going to judge. On his thigh, he has written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, that designation means there's nobody higher. There's no bigger king. There's no bigger lord. I am the king of kings and lord of lords. I am coming to judge. There are people who deny Christianity, who deny Christ, who deny the authority of God. Not because they really have a sound theological reason, but because they realized the wickedness of their own lives. And if they really were to acknowledge a God, what would they also have to acknowledge? That maybe he'll judge them for their wickedness. So it's easier to deny there is a God than to acknowledge our own wickedness. For years, Bill Bennett, uh, who was the Secretary of Education under Ronald Reagan, was uh, a very conservative voice in America who preached and proclaimed across America really the values of morality and of living a virtuous life. Uh, One of his most popular books published in the late 80s, early 90s, I think, was called The Book of Virtues. It was a collection, a compendium of, of stories about morality it's a great book. If you parents don't have it, I would encourage you to get it called The Book of Virtues. It's just a 
whole series of stories that illustrate different virtues in life that you can read to your children, collections of great, great literature. But then in 2003, the news came out that Bill Bennett had lost millions, really, of dollars uh, at the gambling tables in Las Vegas. Suddenly, a guy who is proclaiming moral virtues uh, suddenly doesn't appear quite so virtuous. It was a feeding frenzy. I don't know if you remember the news at the time, but Bill Bennett was like a really prominent voice, and so the media just really came down on the hypocrisy of what they perceived as Bennett's gambling problem. Now, for a long time, Bennett did not acknowledge that he even had a gambling problem. He said, this is money I'm spending for entertainment. My family is financially secure. I'm not at a loss. It was a couple of years before he even acknowledged the fact, yeah, you know, I've got a gambling, and he gave it up. But in the commentaries that you read at the time, one of the things that struck me was not so much the hypocrisy of Bennett as, as if it was like a relief for me. Like a relief from those who were sinning. Oh, well, you know, even Bill Bennett can't do it, so I can't do it. Do you, do you understand the point? There's this acknowledgement. There's this belief that if, if, if there is no God, there is no judgment. So I can live like I want to live as long as I don't really harm anybody else and there will be no consequences long term. I believe the Bible teaches clearly that there is a day of judgment coming. Now between now and then we have multiple opportunities to to see our lives turn around. But on the day of Christ's return, that is, that is when judgment is coming. Fourth point, which let's turn to a positive corner. Um, the, the return brings hope. The return brings hope. The Christian's attitude is essentially that of hope, the hope of Christ's return. Look at these two passages. And again, I can look at many different ones, but... While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we have hope in the Christ's return, and Christ's return is hope. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Hope in the return. I, I don't know if you noticed, um, but when I preached on um, the risen Christ, one of my points was on hope. When I preached on the ascended Christ, one of my points was on hope. The return of Christ, one of the points is about hope. Do you, do you think throughout the Bible that maybe God is trying to tell us we really need hope? And that all that he's done for us is is pointing us in the direction to live hopeful, joyful, fulfilled lives versus hopeless existence. Satan wants you to live a hopeless existence. He wants you to give up. He wants you to throw in the towel. He wants you to think it'll never get any better than this. He wants you to think everybody doesn't like you. 
He wants you to think you're the only one. He wants to isolate you. He wants to kill you. He wants to separate you from God. And every... But the Christian life, if it tells us anything through the risen Christ, the ascended Christ, the coming Christ, you have hope. A hope not founded in you, but a hope founded in him. We have our priorities so screwed up that we really don't know where to look for hope, how to find hope. The foundation underneath us is crumbling. Let me give you a couple of examples. I want to start with Taco Bell. I know that was a quick transition. You're probably like, what? Taco Bell opened this week in Japan over a three-hour wait to get into Taco Bell. And they're giving away burritos as fast as they can. Three-hour wait to get into Taco Bell. Last month, the CEO, the new CEO of uh, Taco Bell, and excuse me for this picture, introduced a new... They introduced a new uh, taco biscuit. It's called, it's a biscuit taco. Three different forms of this biscuit taco. Doesn't that just make your mouth water right there? They're hoping, they're hoping that over 20% of Taco Bell's um, new, uh, their revenue will be coming from the taco biscuit. I, I don't have much faith. I don't have much hope in the taco biscuit. Here's what the CEO said, though. He said, consumers tell me they don't even have time to make cereal. Think about this. Some of you, it's hitting you all of a sudden. Our lives are so pitiful and so busy that we don't have time to make cereal. Now, I made a bowl of cereal this morning. I timed it. It took me 30 seconds. 30 seconds to get that milk out of the fridge, that honey bunches of oats out of the cabinet, pour it in a bowl, pour your milk over. 30 seconds from start to finish, I'm sitting at my table eating. We don't even, that's, that's how messed up our priorities are. Are we that hopeless that we can't even make a bowl of cereal? Even my boys can make their bowl of cereal. Now, they don't want to. They prefer their mom did it for them still, but in a serious attempt to hold off wrinkles, Tess Christian, who's in her 50s, says she has not smiled in over 40 years. Guys, wouldn't you love to come home to this every day? (laughs) Well, she doesn't look happy, but dadgummit, she ain't got no wrinkles. (laughs) Here's my priorities. I'd rather trade, I'd rather trade smiling for wrinkles. Or I'd rather trade wrinkles for smiling. I mean, that's where we are. We want to, she says she's happy, she's joyful. But she made a decision when she was 10 years old not to smile so that she would not get wrinkles. And she's basically saying, look at my forehead. Look, doesn't it look great? Yeah, but who cares? There's no joy involved. We live in a world. We live in a world that that would say to us, 
this is important and this isn't. This matters and this doesn't. And if we're not careful, we'll start to buy into it. We'll start to buy into it. And when we do, I'm telling you, we'll end up in a hopeless city wondering how we got here. Because at some point, rather than believing that Jesus is alive, Jesus is ascended into heaven, and Jesus is coming back, we have our hope. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, that's all this other stuff, but I'm going to wholly lean on Jesus' name because on Christ the solid rock I stand. Everything else is sinking sand. If you're experiencing a measure of hopelessness this morning, then I would encourage you to ask yourself, what is the lie I've bought into? What is the lie I'm believing? The ultimate lie has to do with death, by the way. And in Corinthians, Paul says this. This is the message version about, and he's been reviewing all that Christ has done and who Jesus is. And he says this, but let me tell you something wonderful. A mystery I'll probably never fully understand. By the way, if Paul doesn't understand it, do you think you do? I know we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us and filling us, but probably not. But he says this, we're not all going to die, but we all are going to be changed. You hear a blast and all blasts from a trumpet, and in the time that you look up and blink your eyes, it's over. On signal from the trumpet from heaven, the dead will be up and out of their graves, beyond the reach of death, never to die again. At the same moment, and in the same way, we'll all be changed. In the resurrection scheme of things, this has to happen. Everything perishable, taken off the shelves, and replaced by the imperishable. This mortal, replaced by the immortal. Then this saying will come true. Death swallowed up by triumphant life. Who, I think I misprinted that, who has the last word, O death? O death, who's afraid of you now? The victory of God. The victory of God over death so that we have ultimate hope in him. Last point is this. The return of Christ demands a response on our behalf. Really, it demands a response on everybody's behalf. If you want to just go ahead and ignore it, that's up to you. But really, if you think about it very much, and the Bible teaches that we, we have to respond as a result. James 5, 7 says, Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains? You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. What is our first response? Our first response is this, stand fast, stand firm. Don't give up. The Lord's coming is imminent. We don't know when, but it's imminent. Stand as if, it could, do not give up. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 and following. I'm going to read, this is kind of a longer passage, but just follow along. This is a passage about his return. Brothers, We do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. Again, fall asleep, for those who aren't sure, that's that's another euphemism for dead. Uh, Those who are dead. Or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus 
those who have fallen asleep in him. A little over four years ago, uh, at this very moment, um, my family was in South Florida doing the memorial service for my mom, who died a little over four years ago near the beginning of April. And I remember standing at my mother's um, bed as she passed away. And at that moment, at that moment, the one thought that came to me was this. I pray that everything I believe is true. I believe that everything I believe is true. And, and when I did, and I said, God, just fill me with your presence. I mean, I was there by myself. My, my, my sister and my dad were, were about to come into the room, but they had been, my dad had needed some rest, so they had gone, and I was there with my mom. And um, This passage really encouraged me because death, physical death is going to touch all of us at some point. But those who fall asleep in Christ, there's no reason to mourn beyond the short-term moment of passing because there's this assurance, this hope that the return of Christ brings us. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Steadfastness. Encouragement. We encourage one another. One of the things about the return of Christ is it's become such a theological maze that sometimes we don't talk about it at all. I don't know. I don't know who the Antichrist is. By the way, I, I can name 10 Antichrists since I've been born. At least people identified people as the Antichrist. Most of them are presidents of the United States uh, or popes or something else. I mean, but everybody has their view or the, you know, the prime minister of Russia, three or four of them have been named as Antichrist. I, I don't know who the Antichrist is, but I know who Jesus is. And as a result, I want to stand firm and I want us to encourage one another. We encourage one another by saying Christ will return. Christ is risen from the dead. Christ is ascended into heaven and Christ will return. In February of 2015, a woman named Barbara Bagley, this is just two months ago, a woman by the name of Barbara Bagley won the right. Now listen to this. I, I had to look at it several times. She won the right to sue herself. She won the right to sue herself. Here's what happened. The Utah Court of Appeals ruled that she could legally sue herself for her own negligent driving that caused the death of her husband. Here's the idea. She is the... Um, Oh, what's the person who's over the estate? Executor of her husband's estate. But she was also driving the car that killed her husband. So she felt like as executor, she should sue the person who was driving, who also happened to be her. 
who do you think she's going after? She's going after the insurance company. But the only way she could do that as the executor was to sue herself. We are living in one screwed up world, are we not? Where we now can sue ourselves in order to get money. Or whatever. We have, we have no way to really speak life into one another. In the way our culture and society is messing with us. But we do, in Jesus have a word of hope and of life and of encouragement. And the very final thing is this, and I pray we never lose sight of this. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. That's, a, again, speaking of the return of Christ. What do we do? We are to be merciful to those who doubt. We're not to shoot those who have questions. We should show mercy to those who have questions and this is very great. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. What are we to do? Wow, we, we are to work while there's light. And what is our work? Show mercy to those who doubt. Find another person who needs to know Jesus. Snatch them from the fire. Because when the day of judgment comes... If we really believed in this day of judgment and on that day, the person who's standing before him who doesn't know him will be eternally separated from him, should it not motivate us to say, let's go? There's people in my family. There's people, there's people next door to me. There are people in my workplace who don't know Jesus. Do it in love and mercy. Don't be an idiot. Uh, as you try and share the good news of Jesus Christ. Don't be so crazy that they're put off by the good news of Jesus. Do it in love. Do it in mercy, but do it with the motivation that this is going to matter for all of eternity for them. The return of Christ, as we've just barely scratched the surface, the things we know are this. It's promised. He is coming back. It, it's imminent. We live as if it could happen every day, in, at any moment of any day, but we don't know when that day will be. The return of Christ will bring judgment when he comes, but we as people of God should stand in hope. If we really believe these things, then we should stand firm, remain steadfast and patient. We should encourage each other saying, don't give up, don't give up, do not give up. And we should reach the lost. Help them to see who Jesus Christ really is. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you that your return is imminent and that you are coming again. And we, as the church, we pray, even so, Lord Jesus, quickly come. But until you return, we pray. We pray that we will do what we're supposed to do while we're here. That your kingdom would come, your will would be done all around us. May we remain steadfast. May we stand firm in you. May we be encouraging and encouraged. And may we reach those who don't know you with the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, we are so grateful. We're so thankful. We love you with everything that we are. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you as the one who rules their life and has forgiven their sins, may this be the day of salvation. 
May they receive Jesus as Lord of their lives. Lord, we are so grateful again. We love you and bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. Isn't it good news that Christ is coming again? You should be encouraged. Stand firm for him. Uh, In your bulletin, there's a white connection.